Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. America knows Arne Duncan as the recently departed, long-standing U.S. Secretary of Education who pushed aggressive school reform uh, across the country and uh, uh, was at the center of uh, the the debate over common core standards and uh, other initiatives to try and lift uh, the performance of students uh, and particularly students in underperforming schools. I happen to know him uh, since he was uh, an early teenager hanging around the gyms of Chicago uh, playing basketball with, by the way, better proficiency than me by a thousandfold. Uh, And, uh, and later as the superintendent of the Chicago Public Schools, and as a really passionate, genuine advocate for children, and particularly children in need. So it was a pleasure to welcome Arnie home to Chicago the other day when we sat down for a conversation about uh, children, schools, and where we go from here. Arnie Duncan, welcome. We're here at the University of Chicago. Uh, I don't know if you remember the first time we encountered each other, but I remember you hanging around the Bartlett Gym (laughs) here as a kid uh, when I went over there to play basketball, and you were like a a gym rat, and it it was before you had your growth spurt, I think. (laughs) Uh, But um, you have deep roots in this community. You remember Bartlett, and it was uh, I Noise. I had a noise, yes. I, had I used to come watch you play over there. Yes. <laughs> and uh, you had that unbelievable corkscrew jump shot from 30. Yes, you, defi- defying every, every defying principle. Defying laws of physics of, and gravity, and there's no yes, three-point line. I went to, I went, I, I, I actually taught Joakim Noah how to shoot, <laughs> so. Uh, um, had there been a three-point line, you would have made a lot of money in a different business. So, no, uh, I, yeah. I know, I know, uh, but... Um, and had there been no gym, I probably would have been a better student. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, you grew up in this community in Hyde Park, and uh, I'm I'm really interested in the roots of your your interest in kids, and particularly kids who are uh, in in communities that are challenged. Um, talk a little bit about about growing up here, about your mom, about how you you got interested in education. And children. Yeah. Well, first of all, it is great to be home. And I grew up at 56 in Blackstone. My dad was a professor here in the psychology department until he passed away. And uh, to How be, old were you when your dad passed away? Uh, that was eight, 
uh, nine years ago now. I see. So, so yeah, 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 not not when I was little. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it, it was just formative, and there's something is you know better than I something just special about Hyde Park, and something special about the University of Chicago community, and having you know growing up literally on campus here, um, just the, the memories of you know playing basketball, playing soccer, playing football, stack field, watching you guys play, um, just to have a chance to come back and now have my kids grow up in this environment mean, means a lot. But I was born in 64. My mother was asked to run a little Bible study program on 46th Street, which, as you know, is literally 11 blocks from, from here. But a, but, a, but a million miles away. 47th Street was the dividing line, was the border, and she went down there one summer. The border between... Hyde Park, middle class, diverse, integrated community, and all black, all poor, very violent, lots of lots of issues. You know the the Mike Nichols quote right about Hyde Park. Hyde <laughs> Park is uh, black and white, standing shoulder to shoulder against the poor. <laughs> <laughs> Brother, you got to do a little better than that, man. Got to break that image, but um. Anyway, she went down to uh, just not do- not entirely fair. I should say <laughs> I have to work here, so I should I should say that was that's not entirely Mike's quote, fair. not David's yeah. quote. Yes. To, be, to be very clear, yes. um, but she went down to run a little uh, you know Bible study program one summer. They had just moved here. I think she had moved from Cleveland. To, to my dad was in graduate school here actually, and she was working with a group of nine year old girls, and found that they were illiterate. Found they couldn't read. And that changed her life forever. It was just unfathomable to her. So she started just a little after-school program in 61. Um, I was born in 64. My sister was born in 67. My brother in 70. And she raised all of us as a part of her program. So literally from the time we were born, we were going down with her every single day. And it was just this extraordinary formative experience where all my life I've seen kids who happen to be black, who happen to be poor, who happen to often come from not the most functional families. But because my mother was in their life, they went on to do some pretty extraordinary things. And so I've seen the real potential of what kids can do regardless of background, regardless of birth. It's a lot of hard work. We had lots of heartbreak as well, well, lots of tragedy. Um, what, what, like, when you say tragedy, what, what, what kinds of tragedy? Well, we had the, the, I'm actually just, you know, being a, being a dad and a parent now, just thinking about my mother's physical courage, it's stunning to me. I mean, the level of violence that we saw and experienced, the threats. Even then, to, there were gang uh, the issues, ga- the, black Stone uh, Rangers, uh, and- more than more than issues. So one of my earliest memories when I was about six is the Blackstone Rangers, the church where she was working, wanted to turn the church into an arsenal. Blackstone Rangers was a street gang in Chicago. Um, and, was and is. I guess it has offshoots uh, now. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, um, ne- next generation now. But um, they wanted to turn the church where she was running her tutoring program into an arsenal. The the pastor refused, and so they firebombed it. And so we moved. I mean, it was a you know. Must have been six or seven with little crates of books walking from that church, which was, you know, ruined down to another block. Another church took her in. Um, she had. Did you worry about her? Oh, I, we worried all the time, and um, you know, she was threat. I remember coming home at night and having conversations where I, I mean, distinct folks that said she they would kill her if if she came back the next day, and we'd just sort of talk about this at the dinner time table. And I remember we decided to go back, and I just think of her courage. Um, my father's courage to let his wife and his three babies, you know, go into this environment. There were shootings. There were, you know, she used to pick up 
all you know a bunch of kids going to there's a time when we're driving down the street to pick up kids and uh guys running down the street with a rifle actually looking to kill one of the older brothers of the kids that she was working with because he was selling drugs out of the alley that we used to drive down and she was legendary for driving so slowly because she's always scared about hitting the kid and she put it in reverse and <laughs> backed up faster than she ever did <laughs> driving forward but it was just um it's a long way of saying that I see so many, you know, false courage or things of people talking about, you know, courage to take this vote or whatever. And courage is when you're willing to, when you're willing to die for something. And I think she was prepared and thank God that never happened, but it, it was a long time and things got better over time. After a certain point, the gangs actually frankly protected her and, uh, she worked. With Why do them. you think that happened? It was she earned there was tremendous distrust early. Who is this crazy white woman and whites were the enemy and what does she want and what's her agenda? And I remember uh she would feed kids every day and because kids were hungry and apples and cheese and bread and I remember people saying, Well, she's gonna poison the apples to kill the kids and you know, just that kind of fear. But the fact that she stayed with it, you know, every day for, you know, until she got sick. Um, over time, she just earned the trust and respect. How many and years did she do that? She, she, she started in 61. She basically had a 50-year run. And unfortunately, she has Alzheimer's now. She's still alive, but, you know, basically stopped, had to stop working a couple years ago. But she was in the community for 50 years and raised generations of kids. And to see over the time the trust and the respect, I'll give you one funny story. <laughs> one time we were driving home at night on 47th Street, and there was this legendary, uh, legendary lounge, Baby O's Lounge, where all kinds of crazy stuff happened. And a guy who must have been drunk hit us in the car and uh, jumped out, was very belligerent. We were trying to figure out what to do. And you know, he didn't know her. He didn't know us. <laughs> And we happened to be right across the street from Baby O's Lounge. And all these people came running out of Baby's, Baby, o, Baby O's Lounge to protect her. And this guy had no idea how was this possible. <laughs> and so he took off his car flying. <laughs> Never filed a police report. But I think he was like, what world am I in? <laughs> all the street people are coming to, to help her. Um, but that was, it was hard-earned, but it, it, was, it was well-earned. And the trust was mutual. And she didn't care if you know, folks were in the gangs, what she wanted to try and help. And... You, we talked about the the tragic kids, and I assume that the, the, I assume that there were kids who she tutored, who who were lost to some of the forces that were at play in the community yeah. and still are today. Yeah, this issue of gun violence that you and I worry so much about. Um, for me, that goes back to when when I was like thirteen, fourteen. That's when I started to lose friends. Um, Less from her program because she really was able to create a safe sanctuary. But I started going out into the community to play basketball and try and get better. And I started to have friends killed when I was a young teenager. And frankly, some of them, they were gang members. Many of them helped protect me and helped sort of give me safe passage to play in places and ensured I got, you know, was able to get home. And so that, that, uh, that shaped me. And I have to say it, it scarred me in ways that are still hard to, uh, Hard to talk about. And the fact that things have gotten worse over time, the fact that we haven't broken through. I think the, the president's actions yesterday were a, a very important step in the right direction. As we speak, the, uh, yesterday the president uh, signed an executive order on guns. Um, so, so what, we, since you brought it up, let me. you and I both know him very, very yeah, well. Yeah. What was your uh, reaction when you saw his statement? You know, he's a very... You know, he's a very composed guy, as you know, and uh, I don't think I've ever seen him 
since he was, uh, you know, I saw him in in Virginia on the day before the election, um, uh, crying when he was talking about his grandmother who had just passed away, who had raised him. Yeah. Uh, but uh, this is not a common occurrence uh, for him to show those kinds of displays of emotion. How, what was your thought when you saw well, that? Well, first of all, I was just unbelievably proud that he did it, and he's going to take huge heat. It was the right thing to do. It's an important step in the right direction. It doesn't solve the world's problems. But honestly, what I thought was actually more important than the policy was the emotion. And as you know much better than I, he is someone who keeps his emotions close right. to the vest. He does not like to to, to reveal that. But this is the most human of issues and the most tragic of issues. And I think what you saw was the pain and the heartbreak and the anger and the frustration that he has experienced that on his watch as president, we've had this devastating levels of violence. I think also the empathy as a father. You know, he's always told me that if something happened to one of his kids, he could never get out of bed. Right. And uh, and I he called me or he emailed me the day of the— Newtown shooting, and he said, uh, "This is the first time I cried in the Oval Office." Yeah, no, that's he said very publicly that that's you know by far the hardest day, and you know, all the all the horrific issues that you guys had to deal with at the White House. That was by far the hardest day, and I think yesterday he was surrounded by like you said, a lot of moms and dads just like him, who just happened to be a lot less fortunate than him, than, than him, and through no fault of their own, lost their babies. And the fact that that has continued to happen at staggering rates here in the United States, and it doesn't happen in other places, not, not to bounce around too much, but I always give the example, my wife is from Australia. They had a horrific mass shooting in 1996, actually in her home state of Tasmania, where a couple dozen people were killed. And that government, which was actually a conservative government, in the next couple of weeks radically changed their gun laws. And in the 19 years since that, the nation of Australia has not had a single mass shooting. So they've raised a generation of children there where they don't know what a mass shooting is. And I just contrast the gift that they've given their children versus what we have here in the United States, where it's almost now at a weekly basis that kids are faced with this and dealing with that. And in the schools, you have people selling bulletproof blankets and kids are doing these drills. Just what does that do for kids you know, psychology. Drills to avoid getting shot. Just avoid getting shot and hiding on his blind. It just you, makes no you sense. The, you are the least likely politician that I know, and you're not a politician. And, you know, I remember uh, when you were uh, being considered, you were the school superintendent in Chicago. We need to talk about that in a minute. But uh, you, uh, and the president was putting his cabinet together, president-elect at that time. And uh, you didn't walk into the room as a front runner for that job, because there are all kinds of other folks um, uh, touted and so on. And when you came out of the room, uh, uh, then Senator Obama uh, came out and said, I was sitting nearby and he said, I can't not give this guy the job just because he's my friend. He said, he's so passionate about this. This is a long way of getting to this question, which is um, how frustrated how frustrating was the politics of Washington uh, to you as a guy who has a sense of urgency about getting things done? Yeah, uh, I, I don't love the, the political piece of this. Um, honestly, I was pretty skeptical about what you could accomplish in education from Washington, given it's such a local issue. 
And I didn't go to Washington because I wanted the, the title or the job. I really wanted to do 10 years leading Chicago public schools here. I worried so much about the turnover in these leadership roles. And I'd done seven and a half. So that part was hard to leave. Um, honestly, the only reason I left was because someone who was a friend of, of yours and mine, who I just thought the world of, and we'd worked together in educationally, was going to give me a chance. And a chance to be part of his team and your team. That was why I did it. It wasn't the job. It wasn't the title. Had someone else asked, frankly, I would have said no. I, I loved what I was doing here in Chicago. But what did but you what, confront there, and what do you think he's confronted? Well, what we were able to do more— Because you mentioned the, the gun issue. There's a reason why we're not Australia. Yeah. There's a gun lobby. Yeah. It's very powerful. So we were able to do more than I thought possible. That's the positive side. I'll give you the positive and the negative. The fact that we were able to put a billion dollars behind early childhood education, that's never happened before. That was huge. The fact that we were able to get so many states to raise standards and get graduation rates at all-time highs, that was huge. We have more than a lot more. of that had to do with the Recovery Act, didn't it? It was huge. That, that money there was very, very helpful. And honestly, some of Congress's dysfunction, while it definitely hurt in some ways, um, it created opportunities for us to just partner directly with states and work very closely across the political spectrum. So while I would have much preferred a more functional Congress, it did not in any way sort of keep us uh, f- from moving or trying to get done what we wanted to. My biggest regrets in terms of what didn't happen with Congress are, are three. One is while we did great work with states on the early childhood piece, the fact that as a nation we couldn't get Congress to invest and partner with states that wanted to put money behind three- and four-year-olds, which I think is the best investment we can make. Um, I really thought that would happen. I traveled all throughout the country. I saw all this momentum. I saw Republican governors, Texas, Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, New Mexico. I can go right down the list, Nevada, who were investing. So it became a bipartisan issue. I, I think, obviously, at this point, naively thought we could break through in Washington, and we failed utterly. Second, Why do you think? Somehow, the, the, the emerging bipartisan consensus that – the rest of the world I saw, I witnessed, I felt it, I touched it. It just didn't penetrate the Washington bubble. And we were able to get maybe three or four uh, Republican members of the House to step up. We weren't able to get any uh, senators to step up. And so we, we failed. You know, John Boehner was chairman of the Education Committee in the House. I got the sense that he really cared about these issues. Uh, why wasn't he more of a force or do you think he was captive to his caucus? Well, I think you're much more of an expert on this than I am. I just think yeah, but he you had worked a, closely he, with he, him. Didn't he you? had an unmanageable. I don't know if they were unmanageable or whether he didn't have the skills to manage them. Whichever, maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle where it usually is. But he was unable to lead. He was do you think he was that. sympathetic to what you wanted to do? Uh, yes, absolutely. absolutely. And it's funny, I'd actually met with him way before any of this happened when I was in Chicago and he came in to meet with Mayor Daly. And we sat down in Mayor Daly's office and talked through a bunch of these issues. So we had a little bit of history together. Mm-hmm. And I think many of my issues and things we pushed were not necessarily Democratic or Republican ideas. It was just trying to give kids a chance in life through education opportunity. And the fact that we have not been able to have a, a bipartisan consensus around that is something where we have a lot of unfinished work. When you think through your years in Washington, um, I want to ask you a question that is a kind of freighted question, but the opposition to Barack Obama that you've seen, um, you try, you, you've, you've been dealing with the issues of race all your life. How much do you think that opposition uh, it was intensified by the fact that he was the first African-American president? How much that, about, of it was that he was a symbol of change? 
there's no question that that was a part of the opposition. And I think having someone who literally physically looked like President Obama, who was a not a traditional white male, was very, very scary to some folks at a time of real change. And I think so much of the sense that people were, you know, the rhetoric around losing their country or losing control, I think a piece of that for some, not for all, but a piece of that for some was um, absolutely tied to race. Were you surprised that the Common Core setting high national standards became as controversial as it was? Uh, we anticipated some of the pushback. I don't know if we anticipated it all. It's interesting, David. You sort of look at take the politics out, which is hard to do. We sort of look at the facts. The fact that in so many states, including right here in Illinois, David, standards were so low that kids who are graduating from high school Many, many, many were not prepared for college and were having to take remedial classes in college. No one wins there. It's costing billions of dollars. Kids lose, families lose, taxpayers lose. It's in no one's advantage. So the idea of having high standards with simple goal being the definition that students who hit these standards don't have to take remedial classes when they go to college, um, that shouldn't be be controversial. But it turned into a big issue of testing. I mean, there was a philosophical issue about what the federal government – even though these were state-developed standards, yeah. there was a the issue of what role the federal government should play, but there also was the issue of testing. Yeah, there, there are a couple issues that got intertwined. First of all, so we, we incentivize through Race to the Top, which is money coming from the stimulus package, which was huge. We incentivize states raising standards and encourage them. And they competed for the money. And competed for the money and encouraged them to work together. The idea of having 50 states have 50 different standards didn't make intuitive sense in a global economy. The world has changed. And states across the political spectrum jumped at that, and that was a, a positive thing. Um, it did become political, I think, in hindsight, Maybe we should call it the uncommon core, not the common core. And the idea, the brand of it doesn't matter. And if you call it the, the Hoosier standards or the Buckeye standards or whatever it might be, the name, the label, I could care less about as long as they are high. And so that was, that was in hindsight, should have been you know, smart on that. And then it got tied, to your point, to the testing part. Because part of it is not just having high standards. Standards is what you need to know. The question is, how do you assess whether kids know that or not? And part of assessments have to be testing. And there are places that test too much, and the president challenged states, and we did to reduce testing where it's redundant or duplicative. But the, again, I always think there's a common sense. I had teachers no- actually come to me and say, like in anxiety, yeah. saying, you know, we're, everybody's so wrapped up, all the faculty, making sure their kids, you know, and, and like you, you can't really, it, it's constraining, you can't teach. Yeah. Uh, I think that that concern was very real and came from not just teachers who were complaining, but from very good teachers in some places. And so the, the balance you have to strike is there. I think these actually were good teachers. Yeah. That's why it concerned me. Yeah, I think, no, I think that was real and valid. And in all of these, there's one extreme. There's a set of folks that want to walk away from any assessments or any measurement, and I'll never support that. There are places where I don't even think it was ill will, but where there were redundant tests, duplicative tests, too much time teaching to the test. And trying to get to the middle ground there is what we've, which, which, we've tried to encourage folks to do. The well, challenge, Dave, is when you walk away from it, you know the kids who get hurt the most are not your kids or my kids. It's the, it's the poor kids. It's the kids in the inner city. It's the kids in the rural communities. It's the kids on Native American reservations. We have to understand whether kids are on track to be successful, not when they're a junior or senior in high school, which is too late, but in third and fourth and fifth grade. And so those 
pushbacks both to the the you know folks working together that for me was purely political that doesn't is less rational to me i think there was a more legitimate pushback on the policy side of were there places that were doing too much testing and truth was absolutely yes a quick story on that when i was leading the chicago public schools when i took over we were taking the illinois state tests which i thought makes sense we'd also been taking the iowa test the iowa tested basic skills for a couple of decades in chicago <laughs> didn't make sense to me why we had taken the iowa test as well so we stopped taking it and cut out almost 50% of the testing. Again, it wasn't ill will. It was just somehow at some point that had been built in an education. Isn't that a lot of what happens in, in any government uh, bureaucracy I, that you, you do things this way because this is the way they've always been done? I think so. I also think in education, we are, we are all very good at doing new, new things. We're not very good at stopping old things. And so things just get layered on often. And testing, I think, was a real manifestation of that challenge. Mm-hmm. The uh, uh, teachers' unions, uh, there was an odd alliance. Maybe it's sensible if you think about it, but between the right and teachers' unions in opposition to some of the reforms that you wanted to uh, make. Um, how, in retrospect, and freed of your um, responsibilities, um, what what is the appropriate role of the teachers unions in terms of reform, and what were your what were what what was your relationship, and where should they be in the future? You know, it's it's a great question, and one I spent a lot of time thinking about when I was here in Chicago and then in D.C. and tried to work very close to the unions. Then I'd have breakfast with the union leaders every month and try and talk these things through very carefully, so that the issues were a little more complex than that. The unions were actually very, very supportive of the Common Core, of high standards, and understood the importance, and were real allies, and had the courage to take on some of their critics on the far on the far left, and understood that so many kids were just being poorly served, where standards get dummied down. Where where there was more friction was on the idea of teacher evaluations, right. and it's a complicated one. I, what what well, I what I was pushing back against is when we came to Washington, I learned a tremendous amount. One of the things I learned, which I was stunned, is that there were a number of states where it was against the law. It was literally in state law that you could not tie teacher evaluation to student learning. And you think about what that means and the implications. And I think great teaching is just so hugely important. And we can't... Isn't tra- one of the concerns, Arnie, though, that, uh, just to take the other side of the argument, that if that the teachers who are teaching the most um, uh, difficult students, the students who have the most challenges, are in jeopardy uh, because their students uh, may not show as much progress as students who are excelling and we're going to accept. Um, theoretically, that's a fair critique. In reality, it's actually very different because what you do, and this is a, an important nuance, <laughs> that what you want to look at is you never want to look at absolute test scores. You want to look at growth and gain, how much students are improving, and you want to look at like students against like students. So you're looking at English language learners against English language learners. You're looking at students with special needs against other students with special needs. And what you see within groups of similar students is you see radically different results, and that's the result of great teaching or, frankly, not so great teaching. And we had schools here in Chicago, you know, 99% poor, 99% African-American, where in one class, every child was passing Algebra 1. In another class down the hallway, 60% of kids were not passing Algebra 1. Same neighborhood, same school, same building, mm-hmm. 
different levels. And for us not to be willing to have that conversation as a nation of how do we identify great this teachers. Is, this is such an interesting thing to me. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a pro-labor person. And I, I revere teachers. I think they're the most important people in our society. I think they, they should be paid more. They should be treated like professionals. Uh, but, uh, you know, these, but teachers unions have a dual role. They're on the, they're champions of education. But on the other hand, they're a union and they're supposed to protect their members. And so their members want the security of knowing they're not going to lose their jobs. Yeah. And it seems to me in, in this instance, there's a, there's a collision. Of purpose, and I, uh, uh, yes, that that plays out. And union leaders, you know, behind the scenes of me quietly, can talk passionately and eloquently about that tension and how it's hard for them as political leaders. But I always think political leaders are there either to keep a job or to make a difference. And what I always said to them: political is that, leaders are well. It's interesting that you say political leaders. So you basically consider labor leaders political leaders. Well, they are. I mean, they're elected by the members. They're, right. they're running for office. Right. You know, that's that's unequivocal. Um, so and, some of the same problems that afflict our political system afflict the labor oh, movement, oh, no, no, which no is they got to please their constituents. No question. What I try to, what I believe in my heart, is that. You know, our teachers, like you said, are heroes. They are nation builders. They have to be paid more. We have to respect them. But what we have to do is increase confidence in public education. And when you fail to talk about excellence, when you refuse to take on some of these things that are hurting kids, you actually reduce public confidence in public education. And unions are, at the end of the day, they're not dissimilar to a business. They need money. They need union dues. The way they get more union dues is to have more members. The way you have more members is to have more parents choosing to send their kids to public schools and having growing public confidence. So where you can increase public confidence in public education, everybody wins. The union wins, the teachers wins, the kids win, the public wins. And so for me, there should not be a competition or a tension between fighting for excellence and fighting for strong unions. But that's been a difficult thing. You also have a, a really interesting generational change. And you have in the union sort of an older generation where things are, you know, some of these ideas are more radical, more, more threatening. But you have this millennial generation that wants to make more money and wants to work hard. And I worry for the union's own sake. Are they really listening to that next generation of, of teachers? And if not, as you know, the, the biggest challenges often don't come from the outside. The Scott Walkers of the world are a real challenge. Often like the biggest challenges are from the inside. And I worry about that if the unions don't do a better job of not just listening, but reacting to what the next generation of teachers are looking for. As we speak in your old uh, precinct, the uh, Chicago uh, School District, Chicago Public Schools, union has taken a strike vote. There's a massive uh, financial crisis uh, that largely emanates from the deferral of pension funds. Uh, you were there for part of that. Uh, was that a mistake uh, to defer those pension payments and let them mount up to this degree? I, I think the um, that's. I think that's a fair, fair question to ask. I think that the biggest challenge for me, to, what worries me the most, is that the state of Illinois just fundamentally unfairly funds the Chicago public school system, having a separate pension system for them versus the rest of the state. We should and, point out just for for everybody everywhere else that Chicago public schools uh, funds its own pension system. The rest of the state is funded by a st uh, school districts are funded by a state system in which Chicago f taxpayers 
also to which Chicago taxpayers also contribute. And the fact that the Chicago public schools get less than half the money to, to fund education of wealthier school districts five or six miles north of us, Winnetka, uh, Wilmette, it's heartbreaking. And the fact that, you know, again, the children that we serve here, that when I was there were 85% free and reduced lunch, poverty, 90% minority. The fact that 13 years, kindergarten through 12th grade, every single year, we had less than half the money to fund education, give our kids a chance in life in these wealthier districts. The cumulative impact of that is devastating. And we sued the state, actually. We lost. But it's a long answer to your question, Dave, is what we need is we need the city business community, we need the Chicago Public School Management, and we need the union locking arms and fighting together to get radical change. I totally agree with you, and I love you, brother, but I can't let you off the hook completely here, which – was it not a mistake to let these pension payments mount up to the degree they were uh, so that we have a crisis now that is, is you know, almost a billion dollars that has to be defrayed? Yeah. So those are hard choices at the time. What you're trying to do in the deferral, which is it hurts absolutely long term, is you're trying not to have the, op- the, the, the other alternative is to have class size go to 35. The other alternative is to eliminate after school programs and summer school programs. And so the question is leaders, do you, you, know, you do everything you can to help kids and not to hurt them. And the long-term cost is very real. The short-term challenge, the only way to, to, uh, to accept those costs are to take things away from kids who desperately need them. And that was a choice that, you know. Uh, do you think that, that, do you think that that would, uh, this is the last question on this. I'm not here to prosecute you on this point, but do you think that um, more should have been made at the time that these choices were being made and that there would be a day of reckoning? Absolutely, you can make that critique. I think we were very clear about that. If you go back and look at the record, you know, folks were very, very clear always on these issues. Um, in the, again, not to move off the subject, but, we have to, as a city, and what has never happened is to unite to fight an unjust system that I, hurts I, kids I, I, every I, single day. I and, agree with this. And the inter the the dysfunctional relationships between management and union and the, the the lack of folks uniting enables the state to continue to hurt the kids of Chicago, which is the part that's most heartbreaking to me. You made a speech at St. Sabina Catholic Church here, Father Michael Flager, the pastor is a very active uh, voice in this community uh, the other day uh, uh, called uh, calling for a new deal for kids. And it made me wonder whether um, how much, how much can schools alone do? So I think schools can do so much more than many are doing today to change kids' lives. And great teachers make a huge difference in kids' lives. Great principals make a huge difference. I don't think, David, we have in Chicago one school system. We probably have three or four or five. And the degree of difficulty of teaching in Englewood or North Lawndale is radically different than teaching on the Gold Coast in Chicago or Northside College Prep. And the fact that we don't recognize that that degree of difficulty and create huge incentives for our hardest working, our most committed teachers and principals to work in the most underserved communities, we perpetuate these problems. And to be very clear, this isn't a, a, a... critique simply of the unions, union and management. And union, I think, could negotiate a contract where it's not lockstep, where everyone's doing the same thing, but there could be different tracks within that contract. Mm -hmm. So that's one piece of it. 
Secondly, what did great schools today do today? Great schools today have amazing after-school programs. They have GED classes for parents. They have family counseling. They have food banks. They have health care clinics attached. And I think, David, in a city like Chicago, we have 600 schools, school buildings, white neighborhoods, Latino neighborhoods, black neighborhoods. These, these are amazing physical resources, and they don't belong to the principal or to the board or to the union. All these 600 buildings, they have classrooms, they have computer labs, they have libraries, they have gyms, some have swimming pools. These facilities should be open 12, 13, 14 hours a day. Bring in the nonprofits, bring in the churches, bring in the social service agencies. The irony, Dave, in this, when my mother started her program in 1961, she tried to go into the local elementary school, Shakespeare, and they would not let her run her program there. So she ended up in the church basement across the street. Because of union concerns? Or? No, I think just a lack of vision of what just, a school just, could be. It's just not, inflexibility. It's not and then 30 years later, I came back to run my own after-school program, my sister, in 1991, same thing. We could not get into the local school. It was amazing. We ended up in the same church basement as my mother. So it's a long way of saying that schools, I think, can and should do so much more, but they can't do it alone. But they can be the epicenter. They could be the heart of the communities. And where our schools are community centers, open 12, 13 hours a day, seven days a week, 11 months out of the year, they are changing kids' lives. But it's a very, very different vision of what a school and what a school building can mean for the community. Uh, not going too long on it, but when we started the After School Matters program with Maggie Daly, which I think has been fantastic for after school. Rich Daly's widow. Most high schools literally, I never forget, they literally sweep the kids out to the street at 2.30 in the afternoon. Yeah. And the streets, as you and I know, are violent. They're not safe. Parents That's the are at-risk time between That's 3 and 6. Time. Yeah. And we had this idea. I remember a legendary, I loved him, legendary principal of Robeson High School said, these kids will never stay. They'll never do whatever. And Robinson ended up having a waiting list of kids who wanted to stay after school and do art and music and computer programming and other things. And so just understanding our kids want to be safe. They want structure. They want to learn. They should be paid for these opportunities. But it's a very different vision of what a school can be mm-hmm. and how we as a community, how we as a city uh, provide these opportunities. Well, listen, I, uh, I applaud you for being an apostle for these kinds of changes. And as we heard, I know it comes from a a, a very deep uh, place in your heart, and uh, uh, I, my my personal feeling is, you know, we as a society have to resolve these questions. We can't leave millions of kids uh, behind. But um, Arnie, I want to thank you for being here. Thank you for your service, and welcome you back to Chicago. Back at you, and all three appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. For more podcasts like this, subscribe to The Axe Files on iTunes. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.